Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction. My name is Toby Mundy and I'm the director of the prize, taking over hosting duties today from our usual host, Razia Iqbal. Uh, the podcast is generously supported, as always, by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. The Read Smart podcast talks to some of the world's leading writers and publishers to explore the world of non-fiction publishing, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes account of this year's prize journey. The winner of the 2021 Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 16th of November. For the last 22 years, the Bailey Gifford Prize has rewarded the very best in non-fiction writing, spanning fields as diverse as history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography, business, autobiography and the arts. In the run-up to the winner announcement next month, I'll be in conversation with our six shortlisted authors, asking them about their lives and enthusiasms and the reasons why they wrote the book. Today, I'm joined by the author of The Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. Patrick Radden Keefe, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. <laughs> there are 500 questions I could ask you, so I'm going to try and contain myself, but I'm um, where did this book begin? Tell us, t- take us back to the beginning where you said you'd written this, you'd written your book about the about the troubles in Northern Ireland, which has been a tremendous success and won the Orwell Prize. How did you end up writing a book about the Sackler dynasty and OxyContin? Well, it really happened in two phases. And the first phase, you have to go back um, actually to, uh, I guess, it, I guess I was already working on Say Nothing, but I was you know, my, my day job is at the New Yorker magazine. And so I was still writing articles, um, as I was working on my book about the troubles. And, um, I wrote a piece about the Sacklers in 2017 and, and the origins of that piece were a bit strange. I, I had written quite a bit about the drug trade, uh, but re- really the illegal drug trade. I was very interested in the Mexican drug cartels and how they operated. And what I noticed about the cartels was that they were exquisitely sensitive to consumer demand. And at a certain point after about 2010, they started suddenly sending more heroin across the border into the United States. And so it it started for me with this riddle. Why would they, when they have these other products, cocaine, methamphetamine, and so forth, why would they suddenly send more heroin? And the answer turned out to be the opioid crisis, um, this terrible public health crisis uh, in which many, many people had started with prescription drugs, prescription painkillers. Um, which are also opioids. They derive from the opium poppy as well. So they're chemical cousins of heroin. And then lots of people ended up kind of graduating to illegal heroin. And so that was how it started. And I I learned that the company that was really, there are many companies to to blame for this crisis, but that the company that was really the tip of the spear was this company, Purdue Pharma, and that it was owned by this family, the Sackler family, which was more familiar to me at the time as a really prominent philanthropic dynasty with a a wing in and around New York and a wing uh, in and around London, actually, um, who had given hundreds of millions of, of dollars over the years to the arts and the sciences. So, so it started with this piece in 2017. And then I, there was kind of a pause. We can, we can talk about this if you'd like, but where I thought there wasn't a book. I didn't think I could do a book. And then it was only really at the very beginning of 2019 that I... Um, that I realized it might be possible to do a book. 
And and what changed in 2019? The company Purdue, which we must go back to, they were tipped into bankruptcy in that year, didn't they? I think. Yeah. So so the I, I mean I think part of the issue really is as much as much as anything about the the kind of writing that I like to do. Uh-huh. So in terms of nonfiction writing, um, I'm always doing a lot of reporting, but but my hope is that for the reader there's a way to read the story just as a story, as a story about people with characters. And it's all true, but that it should feel almost like a novel in the sense that there is, you know, there's a plot, there are people in conflict. You you come to know these figures that you're reading about and, and feel that you understand them in a, in a vivid way. And the problem that I had after publishing this piece about the Sacklers in 2017 which was the first big piece that had just focused on the family. It was not news that they owned this company, Purdue, but but nobody had ever looked at them quite this closely, um, was that I didn't think I could get close enough to tell the story in an intimate way. I thought that a, a book wouldn't work because you would feel as though you were looking at the family through a telescope uh-huh. from, from a very great distance, and you, would, you wouldn't come to know them as people. Um, and <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can tell you that what didn't change was that they, you know, they didn't cooperate with the article and they didn't cooperate with the book. So it's not as though they they threw the door open to me and gave me a lot of access. What changed was that there was a great deal of litigation. And so there, there was a lot of um, internal correspondence right. that I was able to access. And then the other thing that's kind of strange about writing an article is that writing a, a big piece in The New Yorker has the effect sometimes of... Um, you know, it's like when Batman puts the bat signal up in the sky, it kind of tells the world that you're working on the story. And so all of these people suddenly found me after that article came out. People oh, who known the family, intimates of the family members. So um, it, it didn't cause them to pull the drawbridge up then, but some the drawbridge came down all over the place then. Well, so so the family, the, the drawbridge was always up. Uh, yeah. to be, you know, they'd never given interviews. And they um, w- when they learned that I was writing a book, they they... Uh, began um, to, to with the legal threats actually began threatening to sue me. So, so they never cooperated. But there were a lot of people who'd known them over the decades who, once they learned that there was somebody interested in this story, uh, sought me out and said, "Hey, I have a story to tell." And so, although the Sacklers are fond of putting their names on di- uh, distinguished buildings and professorial chairs and the wings of art galleries, their names aren't very don't feature very prominently on Purdue Farmer. Is that right? Yeah, well, this was this was the paradox that got me started on this whole thing. Uh-huh. So, you know, to to take it back to 2016, 2017, when I started the article, you know, I, I start looking into the opioid crisis. I realized that there's this one company that's kind of the the first big malefactor, um, and then that there's this family that's made billions, uh, really on you know in the in the course of this crisis by selling these drugs. Um, and then that the family puts their names up left and right. And for me, you know, I grew up in Boston and I, I spent a year between high school and college working in Harvard Square at a theater there. Mm-hmm. And there was a Sackler Museum at mm-hmm. Harvard. And then I, uh, you know, I moved to college in New York and I would go to the Sackler Wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, you know, I lived in London and there are Sackler galleries uh, mm. at the British Museum, you know, um, the, mm. the, the Sackler name is, there's the Sackler Library at Oxford. The, the Sackler name is everywhere in the UK. 
Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C., where there's a Sackler Gallery uh, right on the mall in the Smithsonian. And that was the context in which I knew the name. I then went to the website of the company, Purdue Pharma, this company that's generated all this wealth. And I looked and looked and looked, and I couldn't find the Sackler name <laughs> anywhere. And so it was that paradox, that idea that there's a kind of mania for putting the name on one kind of institution. And then this, I thought, conspicuous uh, absence of the name on the family company that seemed like uh, something worth exploring. So OxyContin, you say, is the, is the tip of the spear of the opioid crisis. So tell us a little bit about this this product, OxyContin. What is it? What does it do? And what were people doing before OxyContin came along, if you like? Yeah, so so for thousands of years, we've known that products derived from the opium poppy have these twin characteristics. On the one hand, they have this amazing, miraculous therapeutic promise, which is that they can relieve terrible pain. And on the other hand, they can be quite addictive. And, and this is not news. I mean, we've always known this. And uh, through the course of the 20th century, it, it's something we've kind of learned and forgotten and relearned with various, you know, w w whether it was heroin or morphine or, or what have you. And uh, there was a previous drug that the Sackler family in Purdue had had, which was actually developed at Knapp Laboratories in Cambridge, a company that, Cambridge, England, a company that they owned, which was called MS Contin. And it was a morphine drug. And it was very successful. It was a painkiller for people experiencing terrible cancer pain. And as the patent for MS Contin was running out, the family and the company were trying to decide, well, how, what can we replace this with? And they were looking at other opioids. And there were two big pivots that they made. The first was they said, you know, the trouble is these drugs are really only prescribed for very severe pain. They're the drug that you keep on the top shelf. It's the kind of nuclear solution that you reach for when other remedies have failed. Wouldn't it be great if we could develop something that was not just for severe pain, but for, for moderate pain, hmm. for chronic pain, for back pain, sports injuries, what have you? Uh, that's, there's a much bigger market for that. And so the, the first idea was, what if we position our new drug, which would be OxyContin, OxyCodone, which is another opioid. It's actually much stronger than morphine. Um, and with this thing, they, they call it the Contin system, which is a, it's essentially a seal on the pill, which slowly regulates the flow of the drug into your bloodstream. So Contin the after, con after continuous, presumably. Then. Exactly. It's a continuous yeah. flow. And so they thought, what if we position this for a much, a much broader market? The challenge, of course, is you have all these physicians who would worry that it's addictive. Hmm. And so what they say is because of that Contin feature, because it's a continuous flow, you won't get highs and lows or kind of peaks and troughs, as they say. Um, and so therefore, it won't be addictive. And this was a, a supposition on their part. It was not something they knew. It was a kind of uh, very optimistic bit of conjecture. Um, but they proceeded to try and persuade physicians that they should prescribe these drugs much more widely than they were, that there was lots of untreated chronic pain and that OxyContin was the answer. And they were phenomenally successful in making that case. And did, did something, had something shifted in American culture, do you think, about the relationship with pain? Because there was a, there was a time, I guess, and most physicians would say, well, there's a trade-off because you have 
you have chronic pain and it's a blight on your life. But on the other hand, the things the thing that's going to treat it is highly addictive and is a greater blight on your life. How did they work around? How did that trade off that thing that all physicians must have known? How do they get around that? Yeah, it's it, it's a it, one of the kind of dreadful ironies of this story is that the development of OxyContin is happening against the backdrop of a kind of revision in the medical establishment. And this was this was true in the UK as well as the US, where mm-hmm. there were physicians uh, in the 1980s and into the 1990s who argued, you know, we haven't taken pain seriously enough. There's been too much of a tendency to, um, you know, to say, oh, just, just grin, and, grin and bear it, right? Um, and as a consequence, you've got lots and lots of people who have suffered unnecessarily from terrible pain. And so you had this critique um, and and a critique that also said that doctors, when they went to medical school, weren't really trained in pain and pain management. Mm. Uh, It was seen more as a symptom uh, of an underlying problem and not a problem that was worthy of its own study. And I, I should say, I think that critique was accurate. Yeah. In, in some measure. The trouble is you then had industry which rushed into that vacuum and said, here's the answer. Opioids are the answer. And if physicians don't have the education in this, well, we'll provide the education. We'll underwrite the education. And so you have this kind of interesting confluence of, I think, a, a very sincere uh, revisionist school of physicians thinking about pain, and then a totally rapacious set of corporate interests uh, which you know uh, observes an opening in in the marketplace for a new product category um, and creates in oxycontin a, a medical blockbuster and is it is it right to say that um, Purdue identified that there was these people suffering from pain but then they but then the, the the sufferers were presented with for their sports injury or for something that was extremely uncomfortable and and, and bad. But they were, but what they took was incredibly strong. Is that right? I mean, it was a hammer to crack a nut sort of thing. Is that fair? Do you think? Absolutely. And 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 not only that, there are these. You know, m- my book um, is is largely built on these internal documents that I was able to get hold of, and there are these amazing conversations. Uh, which we see just 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 in black and white and emails in which very senior members of the company are talking about how they had this previous drug, MS Contin, which was a morphine drug. And there's a discussion about how different drugs have different personalities. This is all kind of marketing speak. This is marketing people saying that different drugs have different personalities. And, and the personality of morphine was a very intimidating one. Uh, you know, if, if your grandmother was going on morphine, it meant your grandmother was going to die. And so there was a kind of stigma associated with morphine. And they realized that oxycodone didn't have that stigma. Um, and in fact, that physicians in their focus groups thought that oxycodone was a weaker drug than morphine. And it really, I, I almost fell out of my chair reading these emails, but there are these emails in which these very senior executives at the company say, we must be very careful not to do anything to disabuse these physicians of their mistaken impression <laughs> that the drug we're selling is weaker than morphine. We can't let them figure out that it's actually twice as strong because if we did, that would hurt our market. So they, they came up with this tag phrase for OxyContin. It's, it's the one to start with and the one to stay with. Wow. 
And the, and the Sackler family, right from the beginning, had been pioneers of pharmaceutical advertising, I think. is that That's right, isn't it? That was one of the stories I wanted to tell in the book. You know, yeah. the, the book uh, starts in the early 20th century. So OxyContin isn't, isn't introduced until 1996. But I really wanted to do something somewhat different, a kind of sprawling family history. And the, the first part of the book, which really covers the 1950s and 60s up to the 1980s and focuses on the oldest of the three Sackler brothers, Arthur, um, you know, to, to, to me, it's, it's not a kind of an incidental story about another, about a wacky uncle mm. who, who I'm, I'm roping in because he's a good character. What's fascinating about Arthur Sackler is that though he dies before the introduction of OxyContin, he pioneers the whole model for the advertising and marketing of drugs that would end up being perfected with OxyContin by, you know, by his own brothers and nephew uh, in the 1990s. And and he'd already been a pioneer of marketing Valium, hadn't he, which had caused a, its own addiction epidemic. He had. And yeah. so this is really a story in which um, everything happens twice, in which <laughs> history keeps repeating itself. And in that case, yes, you're quite right. So Arthur had been a, I mean, he actually started in advertising as a high school student during the Great Depression. He needed to find a job and and worked as the advertising manager for the school newspaper. Um, he's kind of amazing, Arthur, I thought. He just is an extraordinary... He's like, he is a character from a novel. I mean, he's the most extraordinary person. Yeah, I mean, he. T I felt as though he was just such a rich and fascinating character, so protean and charismatic. And, yeah. um, and there's something wonderfully... Um, you know, he has that kind of uh, mid-century vigor like he, he just he reminded me of a, a character in a Saul Bellow novel mm. um and um and yeah he 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 had it was as though kind of any one life couldn't contain him so he had multiple careers and multiple wives and he was a big collector there was a mania in everything he did um and to me that was interesting because the, the book is in a lot of ways about conflicts of interest it's about the it's about the confluence of medicine and business. And uh, I think looking back from the vantage point of 2021, the mingling of those two, the idea that commerce becomes a wedge between the patient and the doctor, that's quite a dangerous thing. But to Arthur Sackler in the 1940s and 50s, he saw only promise. And so Purdue markets the hell out of Oxycontin and persuades a sceptical medical community that this is not an addictive thing and that this continuous release is going to mitigate the highly addictive effects of the, of, of the opioids within the, the drug. What about the FDA, though? <laughs> you might ask. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, the crazy thing about the FDA is that it, it not only approves the drug for sale to consumers, but it approves all the marketing claims. And the marketing claims we, we now know are just utterly bogus. Um, it, it's all just conjecture. I mean, it's based on, there was a line in the original package insert on the drug that said, um, because of the delayed release mechanism, OxyContin is believed to reduce the abuse liability of taking these kinds of drugs. And e just even as somebody who doesn't know much about the pharmaceutical industry, just at the language of language and words, is believed? I mean, <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Um, the idea that the FDA would sign off on that. So I looked into this at some length, and part of what I was interested in was the corruption of these institutions by money. But the, the guy at the FDA, 
who signed off on that and indeed was the head official in charge of approving the drug, not long afterwards decides it might be time to leave government and ends up working at, you guessed it, Purdue Pharma. For a salary adjacent to $400,000 a year, did I read in the book? Yeah, for three times his government salary. Wow. But after he went, what did the, did the Food and Drug Administration remain asleep at the wheel? I mean, after that, I mean... Yeah, it did. I mean, I, I think that there's a there's a number of things going on. One of them is a kind of familiar story of just regulatory capture, that regulatory agencies often um, end up uh, in hock to the very industries that they're meant to be regulating. Uh, some of it, I think, is the the revolving door, another familiar problem. And we it's a particularly dramatic example with Curtis Wright. But but you have to remember, for every Curtis Wright, there's a dozen other. That's sorry, Curtis Wright is the name of that official that we were talking about. There are a dozen others who, you know, there are these overeducated, underpaid, long-suffering government bureaucrats who are working adjacent to every day this massive multi-billion-dollar industry. I mean, OxyContin generated $35 billion in revenue. Mm. And so I, I don't even think you need to, you don't need outright bribery or even the dangle of a job offer. You just need to plant the idea in their heads that someday they'll leave. The parallel is with the regulation of Wall Street, I guess, where government officials leave, cross the, cross the bridge and get paid radically more money on the other side. Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is that even just the knowledge that such a future might be possible is in and of itself, I think, corrupting in a very subtle way. Mind mm-hmm. you, I don't know what to do about this. I don't know how you how you regulate your way out of this, this problem. But I think it you don't even need a job offer dangled. You just need the possibility to be alive in the head of the public servant, that they won't always be a public servant. But so there was regulatory capture by Purdue, but the but going back in time again, when Arthur when Arthur was with the man with all of this excess creative and intellectual entrepreneurial energy, he captures an entire supply chain, doesn't he? At one point, I mean, he's he's developing the drugs and then reviewing them in his own journals and so forth. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it That's was incredible. It, there was there was a, a one of the government investigators who looked into Arthur's operations back in the 1950s had had likened him to an octopus because he <laughs> and and he was very careful about um you know that when we spoke at the beginning about the idea that the family name wasn't on the business that's not new for this family. I mean, that, that practice dates back to the 1950s of kind of uh, erasing the family connection so that it won't be clear where all their interests lie and the, and the conflicts of interest won't be uh, necessarily evident to the, to the casual observer. So in Arthur's case, yes, he, there was a drug company that he had, um, you know, he was associated with different labs that would do uh, clinical trials and tests and then medical journals and a medical newspaper that ran advertising that was supplied by his advertising agency, advertising drugs that, you know, were produced by, uh, the drug company that he had an interest in. So you realize that he's, he's got kind of a full spectrum, um, stranglehold on the uh the business absolutely astonishing and equally as i mean the book is absolutely full of these jaw-dropping moments you have these vast paper trails about which i want to ask you more in a second and amazing moments there must have been moments that made your eyes fall out of your head as well writing this book 
Yeah, there were. I mean, m- many of them. Um, and one of the things that, that was tricky for me w- in the writing was actually just kind of modulating my narrative voice um, <laughs> so that I wasn't constantly kind of elbowing the reader in the ribs and saying, <laughs> you know, isn't this outrageous? Yeah. Um, you kind of have to let the let those things speak for themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's any number of, I, I'm trying to think of a good example. I, some of the things for me are, are they're a little bit, Subtle, but but there's a moment in 2010 when Purdue reformulates OxyContin to make it harder to abuse. So they make it harder to crush the pills. Um, and overnight, sales of their biggest dose of OxyContin plummet nationwide by 25%. And for the company, there's this sense of look at that, it's you know, it worked. Our reformulation is good, it discourages abuse. But of course, to me, what I see is so 25% of your sales came from people who were crushing the drug. And this is, you know, this is at a point where they're making billions of dollars a year. It's just astonishing. Wow. And um, although the family didn't cooperate with you, um, you had this incredible source material. Tell us a little bit about what you had and, and how you set about trying to get on top of it and catalog it and make sense of it all. Yeah, I've I've never dealt with you know I, I feel as though so often as somebody who who does investigative writing I'm I'm eager for more material and this was one of those cases in which there was almost too much, um, uh, so I had tens of thousands of pages of documents that came out through litigation, um, and all kinds of transcripts and I you know I I, I relied a lot on old letters so this I discovered the Sackler family would of course never give their papers to any university uh, or archive but they were friends with the kinds of people who did give their you know when they died they would donate their papers to university so I, I realized there were letters in all these different archives from the original Sackler brothers and so I you know I got stuff out of 12 different archives and um uh had lots and lots of sources who I cultivated who shared things like old letters. And I mean, some of it is really quite intimate stuff. There's a family WhatsApp log that the Mortimer family, this is actually the family that's based in London. Um, All the heirs of Mortimer Sackler, they had a a kind of family WhatsApp chat um, of the sort that, that uh, people listening might have with their own families in which they talk about the holidays and should we all meet up and so forth. But they also talked about how to handle the terrible PR of what was happening as, as the world woke up to what Purdue had done. And I got that. Um, wow. Uh, so it, it was very helpful because it meant that, um, again, though I didn't have cooperation, I was able to kind of tell the story using their own voices in a way and and give, you, give the reader some sense of how they speak amongst themselves uh, behind closed doors. And the family itself is riven with its own feuds and disputes isn't it i mean is it right am i am i right to, to to recall that the descendants of arthur our original valium polymath pioneer they're not involved in purdue anymore and they rather they're, they're rather are they disdainful of the members of the family who still are that's right i mean that disdain was not public until uh the, the public woke up to i mean it was not a situation in which there was any kind of public break where they said we we have a real issue with what that family has done until a couple of years ago when they were sort of forced to take a position. Um, 
by the fact that the the public was waking up to all the terrible things that Purdue had done. But yes, I, I listen candidly for me. I mean, I I like a good story, and um, I wanted to write a book that would um, would present some measure of human drama in addition to the the kind of boardroom and pharmaceutical and public health aspects of this tale. And so like any other big wealthy dynasty, the Sacklers have all kinds of internal rivalries and conflicts. And there are, you know, fistfights in board meetings and um, nasty emails and uh, all of that. Um, I, I have to say was, was, was fun for me to research and learn about in part because any family business, you know, it's, it's, it's a closely held family business in which you have kind of warring family members in charge. And so to speak to generations of employees who would have to go to board meetings that, you know, one of them described it, they said going to a board meeting was like sitting through a, a particularly acrimonious Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Brilliant. But do you must, did you feel at times that you were writing a sort of Victorian novel? Um, you mentioned Saul Bellow and I thought about Dickens at one point and Bleak House and I thought about Philip Roth at other times. Did you, did, I mean, obviously not, you're not making anything up. The book is scrupulous, but uh, it, it, it is, it could be a Victorian novel with morphine replacing Oxycontin, I reckon. Yeah, well, that, that in some ways this was, this was in part my ambition. I mean, I thought about novels. I thought about Buddenbrooks. I thought about um, Dreiser, you know, um, that I wanted something with a big sweep in which you follow the generations of this family. And you talked about the rise and fall of a fortune. Um, I think some of the themes uh, are, are you know, themes you see in literature. And part of the fun of doing this kind of work though, is that I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not able to, I can try and dramatize the material as best I can and structure it in a way that, that hopefully is, is seductive for a reader who might not think they'd be interested in a book about opioids. Um, but, uh, but I can't make anything up. And, and the flip side of that is that some of the material itself, I mean, there's a story I tell in the book about Isaac Sackler, the original patriarch who loses everything in the depression. And he gathers his sons to him and he says, I don't have any money to give you. I've lost everything. But the one thing I've given you is a good family name. And it's the most important thing that a parent can give a child. And he says, you know, you could, you could lose a fortune and you can always earn another fortune, but if you lose your good family name, you'll never get it back. And that's the sort of thing that if I were writing a novel, frankly, it'd be a bit on the nose. You know, I mean, yeah. um, it's so there's this kind of this is what I love about this type of writing. There's a sort of found art quality to that kind of anecdote where um, if it weren't true, it would almost be a bit a bit too much. And so, despite all the all the reputational laundering, the the, the uh, regulatory capture, and all the other things, um, they are starting to lose their good name. Some the family or sections of the family aren't. They? I mean, there was a that calamitous appearance in front of the congressional committee in last year, wasn't there, with David and and Kathy? I mean, what, what how how is the how is the world of the beneficiaries of the Sackler? Largesse. How are they reacting, for example, to these the, the the revelations that you and others have put out there? Well, one thing I've been very struck by is that the um, is the that the the Sacklers don't agree on much at all, but they do agree pretty uniformly, even among the third generation, um, that they're terribly misunderstood. 
their view is that they don't have any culpability for the opioid crisis whatsoever, uh, that this is all kind of a false narrative, um, you know, a false narrative that everybody who's looked, who's looked at the situation uh, for any length and is not a Sackler or somebody who's paid by the Sacklers tends to subscribe to. Um, but so th- that's fascinating to me, the, the kind of... Um, the sort of moral blindness that uh, and the kind of collective denial that lead the family to really think that they, that they haven't done anything wrong, but um, you know, they've recently uh, kind of concluded the legal aspect of this in a bankruptcy court, which has issued the family a sweeping grant of immunity from any future litigation over the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, they've agreed to pay, about four and a half billion dollars to help remediate the crisis, but they, importantly, they insist that they make no admission of wrongdoing. Um, and the the one area in which you you are seeing, I think, some measure of real accountability, and it harks back to that Isaac Sackler line, is you're seeing the names start to come down from some of these institutions. Um, the Louvre recently renamed the Sackler Wing. Uh, You've seen the same thing at New York University, at Tufts University. Everybody's watching the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York right now because there's an expectation that the they've announced that they are kind of considering whether or not the Sackler Wing at the Met uh, should continue to be called the Sackler Wing. And we, we don't know how they'll we don't know how they'll come down on that. But I, I will say that there was an interview a few weeks ago. The head of the Met gave an interview to Time Magazine in which he was asked about this, and he he said they'll have a decision soon in the coming months. And, and he wouldn't give an indication one way or the other, but he did say, he did mention, he volunteered. He said, I've been reading this book, Empire of Pain. <laughs> so. huh. Wow. Well, that is a very, very fitting ending for this um, podcast. That's all we have time for, alas, Patrick, although I feel we're only just beginning. Been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much again for joining us, uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, and best of luck in the, uh, in the uh, final selection for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Thank you again, too, to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support for this podcast. Do please, if you're listening, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram at BG Prize, uh, which will give you all the latest and future episodes and news of the prize. You can also sign up for our newsletter through the website, which will bring you updates straight into your inbox. Uh, the Bailey Gifford Prize rewards excellence in nonfiction writing and tries to bring forward the best in intelligent reflection on the world. As I said at the top of the programme, the winner of the prize this year will be announced on the 16th of November. And join us next time when I'll be talking to Kai Miller about his book, Things I Have Withheld. Until then, thank you for listening and see you next time. Read Smart, the Baby Gifford Prize for non-fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation and produced by Four Communications.